Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining us today from his home in New Jersey is my colleague Steve Malanga. Steve is City Journal's senior editor, and he's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's been writing a lot for us lately, as he normally does, but we asked him to come on the show today uh, to discuss his feature essay from the autumn issue of the magazine, which was called, or is called, City Hall Socialists. We released the piece online in late October. It's generated a fair bit of attention, and there will be a link to it in the description. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Just uh, sitting here, hunkering down, waiting for the massive snowstorm to envelop all of us. Yes, yes. 17 in- inches we're supposed to get in my neck of New York, but we'll see. Um, you know, as you detail in this essay, City Hall Socialists, the last few years, have seen a striking emergence of self-identified socialists and their political organizations as active players in city politics across America, with dozens of candidates winning office to various um, you know, local positions. Where are we seeing this trend most powerfully? Where, where, what cities uh, has this been going on? Well, first of all, you know, you'd say big cities and big cities that have traditionally been identified with liberal democratic politics. And in the past, I would say five years, increasingly identified with more progressive politics. Um, I wrote actually about cities becoming more progressive, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago in City Journal and what that meant for a whole bunch of areas, including policing and budgeting. And now we're really taking the next step. And in part, what's interesting and perhaps predictable is that uh, we did see at the national level in two presidential campaigns, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, um, attracting a tremendous amount of attention. I guess what people didn't anticipate or perhaps weren't really looking very closely at was how this might actually translate at the state level and the local level. But essentially what happened is, for instance, one of the the socialist parties, the Democratic Socialists of America, that is closely associated with Sanders, they saw after Sanders' uh, last presidential run in 2016 and then again in 2020, they saw a tremendous increase in their uh, national uh, registrations of um, membership uh, for for decades. This was a a party that was started by Michael Harrington. uh, you know, a famous socialist uh, dating back to the 60s and 70s. And he, um, uh, at the time that uh, that he formed the party, and for years, decades after it, they had a couple of thousand members. After Bernie Sanders ran the first time, membership shot up to like uh, 50,000. And then after the second time, or actually in the time period between uh, when Sanders first ran and, and his second run, uh, it zoomed over 70,000. Now they're looking at perhaps 100,000. In part, it's been spurred not just by Sanders, but then some of Sanders, I guess you could say disciples or some of those he's inspired, um, including uh, especially Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, um, uh, who was elected in New York uh, in New York in a c- congressional district in 2018, Uh, That has a a sort of supercharged membership. So you have all this tremendous membership. Much of it is being concentrated in cities like New York, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, um, Denver, 
uh, I would say the usual suspects when it comes to yeah. politics. Um, but not surprisingly, that is now beginning to have an impact on local politics. And by local politics, I would mean both municipal elections, city hall and and uh, city councils and things like that, but also in state legislative races in districts in cities. Uh, we saw a number of um, uh, Democratic Socialists of America candidates uh, win election to the uh, New York State Legislature, for instance, in the recently held uh, no, the November elections, uh, representing New York City districts, places like Brooklyn. So, so uh, there's a, you know, there's so a. So they're really, uh, really making local inroads. They are, and the thing is, I think probably what's worth discussing is, um, you know, they have a very aggressive, very uh, far left agenda, uh, particularly in economic matters. Well, that was my question, Steve. Are these, are these uh, you know, my next question was, was, are these really socialists in the old-fashioned sense, or is this more a matter of? rebranding what is basically a, a kind of progressive Democrat. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because in some places, when, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure these days uh, the, uh, the, uh, many people completely understand what, what words like socialism or Marxism actually mean. And so in some places, uh, Denver's a good example when a, a candidate was running for a city council there and a local conservative group essentially branded this person a Marxist because what the person was talking about was doing things like, um, you know, redistributing income, government takeover of uh, uh, like utilities and, and you know, uh, private businesses like that, like infrastructure uh, takeovers. And uh, after the person was, um, was, den was uh, you know, branded with that label, she kind of disavowed the label, even though she didn't disavow her agenda. And she, I think she said something to the effect of, I'm not really a communist, uh, I'm actually an anarchist, which <laughs> it's interesting right. that that would, seem, <laughs> that would seem more acceptable in municipal government in America today. But if you look at the agenda, for instance, I'll give you an example. The Democratic Socialists of America in New York City, uh, they are in the process of um, selecting candidates to be endorsed in the municipal elections that take place in New York City in 2021. That includes the mayoral, the mayoral election, but also includes 35 city council seats uh, and also a, a role, you know, important roles like controller and public advocate. So they, they, they basically asked people uh, who were seeking their agenda, whether they would, whether seeking their endorsement, whether they would sign on to their agenda. Their agenda includes includes things like you know taking over the utilities in New York City. It includes things like canceling all rent um, uh, and mortgage payments in New York during the pandemic. So just basically, basically nullifying that. I got you know you know how 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 landlords were, are supposed to survive. I have no idea, but it includes that. It also includes, um, well, to give you an example, they were very, very prominent, uh, particularly AOC, were very prominent in defeating um, uh, Amazon's attempts to come to New York City and build a second headquarters there because they have this anti-gentrification agenda, which essentially says, um, you know, we don't want neighborhoods with all this economic development because they essentially transform the neighborhoods. Now, 
you know, underlying that is about Amazon coming to New York and bringing 25,000 new jobs to an industrial area in Queens and, you know, that's not being used right now, that would have transformed an area. It would have made it better, but, but they opposed it vigorously and essentially shot down, uh, uh, you know, this massive project, project that virtually every city in the country was, um, uh, was vying for. So their agenda is, um, I would call it an anti-growth agenda uh, that focuses on redistribution of income, uh, that focuses on um, I- imposing more regulations and costs on businesses. Uh, whether or not you think that's a socialist agenda uh, or not, I mean, I certainly do. It's, is it socialist in this in the extent to the extent that a place like Cuba or Venezuela is now socialist. I suspect it's not that extreme, but it's pretty far to the left of much of what we have in America, certainly very far to the left of what the traditional Democratic Party is in America. And we're seeing that in New York City because now there's significant uh, conflict between elements of the Democratic Party in New York City, most especially the union movement and the socialists. Well, could you say a bit more about that? Uh, Because that's interesting. So so the the DSA um, is targeting New York City Council in the next election with these six um, candidates they're backing. Uh, now they're they're running for open seats, I believe. So they're not challenging the incumbents who would be Democratic in every case. Uh, in in you know the the areas that the DSA is interested in. I imagine, but this is this is, as you argue in your piece, creating conflict with more traditional Democrats, uh, even left wing Democrats. How you know? How do you see that playing out? And is this uh, is this yeah. a conflict? First of all, it's important to note that although they are running for open seats in New York City in the twenty twenty one elections, because New York City does have term limits, and therefore a lot of seats are open, 35 of 51, that's a lot of seats open in any election these days in America. Uh, Despite that, uh, in previous elections, including uh, AOC's election against Joe Crowley, who was a Democratic incumbent, and in the elections that just took place uh, the state legislature, legislative elections, uh, these, uh, these socialist candidates uh, defeated incumbent Democrats, and they were in, almost universally the incumbent de- Democrats supported by unions. Now, here's the thing: um, uh, the unions say, not surprisingly, that you know they tend to, they tend to make endorsements uh, of incumbents because they need to uh, <laughs> they need to have friends in high places, and um, the uh, socialists tend to be kind of radical reformers and are specifically looking to overturn the establishment, including in a place like New York City, the Democratic establishment. So that's created open conflict between the unions and the DSA. Now, what happened was after the AOC election, not a single union endorsed her. And after uh, several other elections where unions were essentially um, not endorsing socialist candidates, the, the, the DSA produced a memo that was uh, later, um, uh, I guess, uncovered by Political Magazine and uh, released and written about. They produced a memo, which was essentially a, a strategy for infiltrating the unions in New York. They, uh, the, the memo had some uh, really devastating um, uh, 
uh, assessments of some of the uh, unions. For instance, it said that the hotel union in New York City, which has about 35,000 members, had become complacent and is essentially had um, um, was uh, cooperating too much with mag- management. They c- described the latest contract as a kind of suffocating period of labor management peace. You know, so uh, so this was uh, this was. Um, their strategy is kind of permanent agitation. Uh, well, yeah, I guess until they they until they assume power, <laughs> and then and then they're just and then they're going to look for consolidation. But the point the point is that ra- that rather than seeing unions as um, as allies, uh, and you know, I mean, traditionally, of course, socialist movements, you know, were workers' movements, and did see in in many of the early unions, early unions in America, essentially. Um, uh, were socialist in character. That was, in fact, one of the things that the uh, union movement began trying to move away from after World War II, in particular, because of that that label became toxic in America. But but they're actively challenging the, the current unions in the city, and that is some um, creating a very very unusual dynamic. Um, many of the unions, not all of them, but many of them, were upset when. Um, when Amazon pulled out of the city, and they blamed they blamed AOC and the in the DSA for helping to lead that movement, you know, because Amazon was bringing tens of thousands of jobs, including thousands of trade construction jobs, almost all of which were going to be union unionized. Construction in New York City of any kind of uh, you know major character is all unionized, and those were all union jobs that were lost uh, because of the objections of um, of uh, 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 the 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 socialists in the city and their allies. These neo socialists, uh, where I imagine they come down pretty much at the extreme end of identity politics as well, right? Well, absolutely. In New, in Chicago, to give you an example, there's a coalition of um, five. Uh, well, five who recently won election. There was a sixth who had won before. So there are six in the. Um, in the uh, council now on, uh, it's called the Board of Aldermen in, in Chicago. And in, again, interestingly, they won in that election uh, running the kind of the anti, um, estab- an anti-establishment agenda. They ran against Rahm Emanuel, even though Emanuel wasn't running for re-election. They ran against his, his you know, method of, um, of party politics. They ran against the establishment. They defeated a whole bunch of establishment candidates, and now they have been, among other things, the leading voice in Chicago for defunding the police. That's also true in Seattle, where you have just one very, very vocal, prominent uh, socialist uh, council member who combined, though, with a a very progressive uh, uh, council members that are also part of the Seattle uh, the political establishment have been, you know, again, really agitating for defund the police. So that's another part of their agenda. Now, since the pandemic, they have been the leading voices in many places for the most extreme versions of, um, uh, I guess, of economic aid, including, you know, again, just as I said before, canceling all rent, not just uh, not just delaying it, not just withholding evictions, uh, but just 
canceling and that's it. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't have any mortgage payments. You don't have any rent for as long as there's a pandemic. Um, so their, their, their politics are, and particularly their economic policies are extremely aggressive. And um, we haven't even mentioned the business community and their relationship to this because, you know, these are cities, some of which Chicago is a good example, uh, were struggling as it was looking at, uh, uh, San Francisco is another example, looking at out-migration of, uh, of businesses, of big businesses, as uh, taxes went up and more especially as anti-business regulations increased. New York City, for instance, is a good example. During the de Blasio years, there's been a lot of additional registra- um, uh, regulation on businesses, including mandates for paid vacation, mandates for paid family leave, higher uh, minimum wages. Um, uh, all of this increases the cost of doing business. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, significant out-migration. Now, Amazon was going to be different. It was going to be a big win that the city could could boast. And in part, it was going to be a big win because they were given incentives to come here. Um, uh, but that loss really sent a, a, an even stronger message that, uh, you know, it's the same kind of message that we're seeing in um, San Francisco and definitely in Seattle, that as a business, you continue to do business in these places at your own risk. And we now know um, that there's, you know, that that there are a significant number of um, California businesses that are heading to, uh, heading for the exits, uh, including people yeah. like Elon Musk. You know, on on a, a different but still election related topic, uh, you you've written both before and after uh, the November election uh, about the the wide number of initiatives and referendums that were on the ballots in states uh, where, you know, the, the state constitutions allow that process. Uh, you know, one of the examples you wrote about in California, there were, I think, 13 statewide propositions on the ballot this year, uh, including, um, you know, this uh, this measure to overturn the new rules for gig economy workers. Um, I wonder, you know, what's what's your sense of how those played out? You wrote a bit about this after the election and what kind of messages we might read into some of the more prominent results of the state mandates. Well, it's interesting. I guess it depends on how exactly you want to characterize some of these initiatives. But the the, um, the one on the gig economy is a good example. This was led by Uber and Lyft. And what they were essentially trying to do is overturn legislation that the uh, that the uh, state had passed and that Newsom had signed, which which this kind of AB five legislation that essentially designated many many contract workers, many many freelancers as full time employees, and has been for many freelancers disastrous because what's happened is that many of the um, the uh, companies that employ some of these workers uh, as freelancers, for instance, um, being told by this legislation that you now have to consider these people full time and pay them as if they're full time, has simply have simply stopped employing these people in California, and it's been disastrous for many of these people. Despite that, efforts to overturn it 
uh, the, the law 85 have gone nowhere. And so what Uber and Lyft did is they, they put a ballot initiative uh, uh, on the, on the, um, the, um, the ballot, the, the November ballot, essentially saying that the, their drivers are, con- are, are contract workers and that that's how they're going to be defined and therefore this law should not apply to them and people had the chance to vote on this. The thing is, they spent $200 million passing this legislation so that they could continue operating in in California in this matter. That's a, an extremely hefty price. That in itself is uh, a regulatory price, if you will, uh, the $200 million to escape regulation. Uh, they succeeded. They succeeded substantially. They're the, 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 you know, clearly, there's sympathy within the electorate in in California for this position, um, but that was very expensive, and that was part of a larger theme, which is that these ballot initiatives have gotten extremely expensive, not just in California but around the country. Um, in aggregate, uh, supporters and opponents of ballot initiatives, state ballot initiatives, this is for the most part, spent more than a raise and spent more than a billion dollars in this election. That's a lot of money for state elections. Um, in in uh, Illinois, Governor Pritzker tried to institute a, um, a progressive income tax, uh, which was, it, in order to do that, it was necessary to change the state constitution. That battle over the progressive income tax cost about $120 million. Uh, it was actually defeated, surprisingly. I say surprisingly because, number one, most of the polls before the election showed that it was leading, uh, and, and yet it was decisively defeated. Um, and number two, it was defeated despite the fact that Pritzker was saying that if we don't raise taxes uh, on the rich in uh, in Illinois, and that's what you need to do, that's why you need a progressive income tax. He was saying, if we don't raise taxes on the rich in Illinois, then we're gonna, I'm going to have to raise taxes on all of you. Despite that, it's still lost quite significantly. Um, There were a number of other ballot initiatives that also uh, were were record breakers for their states. The the state income tax uh, 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 ballot initiative in Arizona, uh, a regulatory issue in in Massachusetts. So so these are becoming increasingly uh, more expensive. And whether that actually um, uh, discourages uh, groups uh, in the future from, um, uh, you know, from putting Promoting these initiatives it. forth, right. Or whether it, uh, it simply just keeps increasing the cost of these initiatives is a, is a kind of an open question at this particular point. Um, but it's really shocking the amount of money that we're spending just on, not even on candidates, just on ballot questions now. Thanks, Steve. Don't forget to check out Steve Malanga's recent essay at City Journal, a uh, journal called uh, City Hall Socialists. Uh, we, we've discussed it here a bit. Uh, you can find it on our website. We'll link to it in the description. You can follow City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram these days, at City Journal underscore MI. And remember, you can email us at podcast at city-journal.org if you've got any questions or suggestions. And always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Uh, Thanks very much for listening, and thanks, Steve, as always, for joining us. 
Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.